1: Hi, this is Tom Bronson, and welcome to Maximize Business Value, a podcast for business owners who are passionate about building long term sustainable value in their businesses. This episode is part of a new series of podcasts called Tales from the 17% Club. As we've said over and over on this podcast, a full 83% of attempted business transitions failed to reach the finish line, meaning only 17% Are successful. In this series, we'll be interviewing people who have successfully sold their businesses or transitioned them, as we call those folks, the 17% Club, to learn more about the process and hear some really interesting stories. So in this episode, I'd like to welcome our guest, David Weibel. He's the founder and CEO of Work.Software. I've known David for a few years, and I was trying to think back about when we actually first met, but I think it's when we shared a stage at either a Blue Star Symposium or some other event, Uh, and when we first met, David was the CEO of a business called Industry Weapon, a leading digital media company specializing in the advancement of digital signage for all industries. David and his team successfully exited that business in 2020, putting him firmly in the 17% Club. So welcome to Maximize Business Value, David.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And that was uh, quite an intro. (laughs)
1: Well, I hope some of it was actually true. (laughs) Tell us about Industry Weapon, the business that you sold in 2020.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So started that company back in uh, roughly 2006, and then got firmly in in the digital signage market in 2007. And so what we really did is um, help the non-technical people, marketing, merchandising, communication folks make sense of or be able to put their communication on video walls, kiosks, and digital signs. So we were a, we were a SaaS uh, company before it was really cool to call it SaaS or cloud. It was, you know, still kind of referred to as ASP, but, uh, that's what we did. We sold, uh, primarily through the channel, which obviously that's how our paths cross is with one of our great channel partners. And, uh, it was one heck of an interesting ride to say the least. I'll bet. Let's let's talk about that exit. You sold the business in 2020,
1: right? Yes. Okay, so did you have an exit strategy uh, before that time? Or, uh, and if you did, what did that strategy look like? Or did a transaction just fall in your lap? Uh, that's happened before, right? So, so did you have a, an intentional strategy or was it an accidental strategy?
2: No, it, it was intentional. And, and it was probably, you know, for for me, I made certain that we started to, to lay the groundwork very, very early. So my digital war room um, with all the documents and everything that you can imagine was created in year two of the company. And then I started having conversations with... Um, investment bankers, private equity, venture capital, um, about five years prior to the exit. So, you know, really just trying to figure out my my real concern was I wanted to find the right buyer. And, and you know, it's it's no different than when people buy products from you, people buy from people they like. And I wanted to make sure that when I handed the business over, that I liked the people that I, I would hand it over to so that I gave my employees as best of a a chance to continue on with her career as I could. And so we started really, really early with those conversations. That's awesome. I'm really surprised that you
1: started building that data room, if you will. You call it your war room, and I call it a data room. In year two of the business, that's really amazing. Uh, Now, had you done this before? Had you exited a business before? And so you knew to do that stuff?
2: Yeah, we, you know, in we we'd sold a heavy heavy industrial manufacturing company before, and that didn't have a lot of war room needs. But in in right around the two thousands, I was a part of a, a dot com startup that ended up selling. And watching the process of assembling the war room documents, you know, gave me a little pitter patter in my my chest every time I thought about it. So I, I wanted to make certain that we could start that process early. And digital just made a heck of a lot more sense because I could get my arms around everything and actually see the topology of the folders I was creating. And then periodically, I would pull um, some of my my go-to consultants in to take a look at that that structure, whether it be my attorney, my, my tax guys, um, just making sure that I was covering all the bases. Because I think that's the big mystery, right? What, what documents are is a buyer going to ask for? And, and typically, it's everything. So uh, you know, we, we, we had to start that early.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about due diligence and the things that they ask for in just a minute. So, so you started contacting investment bankers, private equity, venture capitalists, those folks about five years prior to the deal, uh, I think. So at that time, did you have a timeline for when you wanted a transaction to happen?
2: No, but you know, when we started into the digital signage market, we went out and um raised a, a small round of of agile financing right right in the the called the million dollar mark. And so I knew I owed it to those investors to to get them some sort of return and you know, when I accepted their investment, it was always understood that you know, this wasn't a lifestyle business for them and, and they would expect us to exit. So we knew something had to happen at some point. And so, again, it, for me, I, I just felt it really important to, to get to know people over time and then not be in that situation where I felt like I was in crunch time. You know, when I knew it was time to go, I wanted to be able to reach out to those handful of people that I had I'd, I'd met that I liked to begin the process. Okay. All
1: right. So you started talking to them
2: around five years before. Did a,
1: did a timeline become clear to you as you started having, engaging in those conversations? Like, all right, this is it. We want to do it in 2020. And now here's what the time frame looks like, or did it just sort of evolve into that?
2: It evolved, but I can say that the conversations were really valuable um, in really just getting clear on, on what I wanted and what I should be expecting the process to look like. You know, everybody tells you, you know, it can happen pretty quick. It could It could be three months. It could be six months. The reality, when I started getting around some people who knew that I wasn't getting ready to go anytime soon. I think the truth kind of flushed out, right? Nine to 12 is realistic and, you know, it could go longer depending on how terrible the documents are or how crazy the due diligence list looks. And so um, those conversations really, really helped. It also opened my eyes to the things that buyers truly cared about. And, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot at Work Software about what I call VCR, or value creation revenue, um, that concept came from the conversations that I was having early on where I started to realize not all revenue is valuable to a buyer and I needed to really get my house in order and, and start putting the right building blocks in place that's going to maximize our exit. I love that. That's a, a term that I'd never heard before you and I started talking
1: a few months back uh, about value creation, VCR, value
2: creation revenue. Give us a quick snapshot of what does that mean. Well, I, I think you know the first thing that any um, leader or, or someone who's getting ready to sell has to understand is, you know, how are you going to be valued? Is it going to be a multiple of EBITDA? Is it going to be a multiple of top line? Once you get that, then you start looking at the revenue streams that are going to contribute to that valuation. For me, at industry weapon, we were primarily a software as a service business, which meant the only revenue that anyone cared about was our subscription revenue. And it had to be sticky, meaning there had to be customers who weren't leaving in a year. They had to stay with us and the longer the better. And so that was a real, real driver for me. If it's EBITDA for a different company, right? they're going to look for the things that are going to drive the most uh, most cash to the bottom line so they, they get that number up and, and where they want it. It also allow them to earmark certain expenses that they can say, hey, when I'm gone or when I sell, we're going to add back some of these expenses or, or bring this revenue back into the, the EBITDA number because I'm no longer going to be here. So it really it really helps you open your eyes from that perspective. And then for your team, when they understand what revenue streams really trip your trigger and why, the magic happens, right? You're, you're, if you have a technology team, they start building features that complement that revenue stream. If your sales guys are out selling, they know now what to focus on and why it makes sense.
1: Yeah. For us, it was the same thing. You know, Recurring revenue, my last company, started around the same time that you did. No one even knew what SaaS was in 2004 and five. Uh, and and we were out building a recurring revenue business because we knew that that uh, added value. I wish I'd thought of that term, value creation uh, revenue, uh, but but that's really what it was for us, that recurring revenue, because it made our business more valuable. Now, you talk about you surrounded yourself with the right people, I think, and that's having what I call a transition team. Tell us about Who were the advisors? What were the role—not their names, but what were the roles that those advisors played for you uh, in your transition planning?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, a couple of things. You're talking right at the exit, correct, or right around the time we were thinking about it. The actual group that's helping you through the process of the exit, right? Yeah. So, interestingly enough, we. I went to my board and said, "Hey, I I want to run this process myself. I, I don't want a banker. Uh, and, and for me, that was the the right decision. Um, a little bit of a micromanaging freak, right? So I I really really wanted wanted the to own the process. And I had a great team at Industry Weapon to run the day to day, so I could afford if I needed to to back off the business without it taking a nosedive because I had I had great partners and a great team in place, but. Once we got to, let's say, once we got down to about three LOIs that I was serious about, um, my team really consisted of my attorney, um, who had a lot of M and A experience, um, and I'd been with him since the beginning, so he really understood the business. Mm -hmm. Um, I brought in, I I separated my finances in two ways, so I, I had a team that did audits. And then I had a separate company that did all of our taxes, right? And so they, they were a nice um, complement and, and kind of helped each other out. And it was a nice check and balance for me. Both of those folks uh, were at the table with me. So my structure was a, is fairly lean on the finance side. I have a phenomenal, actually brought her over to my new business, Controller. But she wasn't a CFO. And so that's what those two parties really helped me do. I had a team that made up my CFO, which also led me to some really, really great discoveries before I sold, which is making sure that all of our documentation as related to our finances were directly relatable to gap principles. And we created revenue recognition policies and all the appropriate policies. So when due diligence happened, we had the document to kind of get those folks up and running without asking all, all the questions that would come if they didn't know we had a policy. And so those are my three keys. Um, again, I had I had two partners that were active in the business that uh, I could lean on. And then I had a wonderful board that, uh, you know, would have done anything for us, but that was it. We kept it lean and we kept it out of any other employees, um, Perviews So no one knew anything was going on.
1: Okay, well, we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. Um, you know, running a process on your own is certainly an option. Since you've been through a process before, you really sort of understood that. You know, it can save a little bit of money for, for most businesses. It's probably better to have professionals running that for you. But you kind of fit into that ideal um, kind of tweener zone, I would call it, where you had the bandwidth to do it yourself, and you had the infrastructure to put get put together the data and manage the process. Not a lot of companies have that all uh, together, and so. But the only reason you did, if I'm hearing correctly, is because of your advanced planning and thinking it through and, uh, and doing that. And so that can that's certainly a way to to save a little bit of money uh, on the back end rather than paying somebody else to do those things so long as you have the bandwidth to do it. So I I applaud you for doing that. I've done the same thing in my businesses, but I've also in other businesses used professionals uh, to help facilitate uh, a deal in that. Um, So let's talk about the once you made the decision and you go out and and you find the three companies and you've got a LOI from each one of them. Well, now it's time to get into kind of that dreaded due diligence. How did you narrow it from
2: three to one, or did you? Did you play all three of them throughout the process? Yeah. Well, I I should first tell you the the LOI process. It it got narrowed down to three. It was a ton of of companies, and so very similar to the the deal room uh, that was that was built, or I should say, the war room that was built with all my documents. I had a a similar interface. I used dealroom.net to to do all of this. I used a, a a subset of that deal room technology to to get everybody who was thinking about this transaction in my system. The great thing about it was I could see who was opening my my documents. I could see what documents they were opening. I could see how long they were looking at it, which really helped me understand who was serious and who was just kicking tires, right? And so. That was really important, but once once we got it down to to three, um, I was actively having conversations with all of them up until the signature, right? Because you know I I had some great advice from from my advisors and some of my mentors on you know the the control is all of your all yours until you sign that LOI, so whatever you do you know you know maximize that as best you can and so once we got down to three um, it was a good probably four weeks of back and forth and and really negotiating it it's really really important to have more than one um, because you, you can really get some wonderful things thrown in there I should also say I think it's really important and not to get into the the nitty-gritty of our deal but to understand that there's there's really two numbers that you really want to look at um, when you're doing a transaction, and the second one's probably more important than the first. Everybody says, "What did you sell the business for?" Right? How much? How much did they pay? And uh, that's an that's an important number. I think you know, just it's kind of nice to play business and know what your goals are and how to keep score. But the real fillet of of the deal is below that number, right? were you able to keep your cash? You know, what what other what other things can you actually negotiate into the deal that if you know what the buyer is buying and why they're buying, it really helps you structure a deal so they can win and you can maximize the the, the take home. Right. And so it, again, the, the first number is for your ego, the second number is for your pocketbook.
1: Right, right, exactly. So Well, it helps to have advanced tax planning as well,
2: especially in in today's day and
1: age. So, did you actually sign three different letters, or only one of those three letters?
2: No. Once you know, once we decided to get married, um, that that was the time to let the other two know that you know, thanks, but I'm going a different route. And and they were all awesome. You know, we every one of them had a. a VC attached to them. So very, very professional. You know, nobody got too ruffled over not being chosen, but uh, everybody appreciates transparency. I mean, I didn't share names, but uh, they all knew that I was looking at other, other folks.
1: Right. So, so you were, it sounds like you were doing some of the due diligence even before you got down a line, right? You were allowing them opening the kimono to, to a lot of them and allowing them
2: to go deep before you had an LOI, yeah, and I wanted to establish very, very quickly with any of those people that I had the the first initial conversation, or let's say the fit conversation, right? How I was going to value the business, and and I think sometimes people are afraid to do that; they don't want to throw a number out first. But I wanted to make sure that the the people that I was talking to understood that I was I was going to do the deal at at, at this you know this range in a multiple and i was i was kind of getting rid of and thinning out the herd very quickly so for me we were a, a multiple of top line we were not a multiple of ebitda and so the first question out of my mouth is you know hey tom how, how do you value businesses is it a multiple of ebitda or a multiple of top line any of the ones that got you know wishy-washy or were a little vague about it i i threw them out because no no point in and playing with people like that. The the serious buyers know what you're looking for and will tell you immediately how they value businesses. It may not perfectly line up, but at least you know you got a straight shooter.
1: Right, right. And it's important to call the hurt, right? Because in any transaction, there are literally dozens and dozens of potential suitors and you just don't have the bandwidth to to deal with all of them long-term. So I'm a big fan of that kind of, I call that anchoring. Right, uh, anchoring the deal. Here's the way we think it should be traded. If you don't value businesses that way, you know, no harm, no foul. Thanks for your time. Moving on, taking away your access to my data room. Right, uh, and exactly. uh, I think that's a smart play. In fact, I'm trying to remember uh, the book written by uh, the Blackstone Group. I think the uh, maybe it's not Blackstone. Um, it's um, never split the difference. Is the name of the book. But it's it's when you're in negotiating, it's it's be the anchor. You want to be the anchor because then you can uh, weigh the conversation based on that. If you let the other person be the anchor, then you're trying to pull them up to yours. Well, now they're trying to pull you down. Uh, if uh, if if you're out of their range, I like that uh, philosophy, and, and but it's but it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs>
2: No, I mean, it, it's, it's just like any sales funnel, right? You, you don't, it, it hurts to see them go, but at the same time, they were never going to be there in the first place.
1: Yeah, exactly. So now was there, after you signed the LOI, was there more due diligence
2: with the actual buyer?
1: Oh my gosh, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, now, just so you know, I did, a, uh, I did a podcast and I think a blog post, I called it the dreaded due diligence. Uh, I'll have to look up what number it is. I'll post it on the on the website again. But uh, so it sounds like you may have had a similar experience that I've had a hundred times. So so uh, how did this that that final round of due diligence go?
2: Well, I, you know, I got to say the, the the buyer was extremely thorough, and um, I, I really appreciated that because again, I wanted to make sure we had a, a a good home for our folks, or at least do as much as I possibly could but it's amazing, they, they don't come all at once, right? It doesn't come in a pretty package and you open it up and it's either in a PDF, an Excel sheet or whatever. It comes in all flavors. And, and for us, there were several audit teams that they sent in. So everything from the finances to the sales, to security, to you name it, right? So in the end, all in all, it was 678 requests. And uh, the power of a—I uh, can't stress enough—having your own um, war room, like a deal room or, or something like that, because a lot of times the requests are are this are coming in as this for the same document. But for me, I wanted to be the glorified waiter for everybody, and I always, you know, back in in my manufacturing days, I was always taught when we had a a union negotiation, you never you never give your own. Um, verbiage for, for things in the contract. You always pull from the union's uh, library. That way you don't have to worry about negotiation over just stupid terms. And so same thing here. I wanted to make sure that even though someone else made the same request, I wasn't going to shame that person. I was going to make certain that we we linked that request to a document and you know they collected it the way they wanted to collect it. And it was really, really important, I think, to make them win and, and help them do as, as little work as they possibly needed to do. And, and uh, I don't think it slowed down on the request by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it definitely kept me in the right mindset of knowing th- this thing is going to end at some point. It's just going to be a lot, lot bigger and longer than I am expecting. Right, right. Well, that's brilliant. A lot of people don't
1: think about that and how to, how to make the job easy. I always say that, that the faster and easier you can make due diligence for the buyer, the more likely a deal will happen. And tends to kill deals, uh, but it's for a lot of other reasons. Now, I'm running the risk here with having you on this uh, podcast in the 17% Club because I'm about to ask you something that I don't think anybody else in the club kind of uh, has achieved very few times do I hear this or at the end of the due diligence you get what I lovingly call the retrade conversation these are the things that we discovered and it's caused us to reprice the deal um so did you get that retrade conversation and if so what was the result did it go up or down
2: yeah so uh, you know for us luckily it it went up um, and in part, and a lot of that was because of the the bottom part of that number that I talked about the the importance of of serving your pocketbook over the ego and in the top line number. I think also what helped or really um, gave us an opportunity to to have that better conversation was the fit conversations up front with the buyers, and so making sure we set expectation, but we didn't overreach. When it came to what we were saying we had or what we were representing because it's going to come out in the due diligence um luckily for us we downplayed a lot of a lot of things so when we started going through the due diligence they were surprised like you know even the way we counted customers we clustered certain customers together where they saw very quickly they could ungroup them and all of a sudden it looked like they they you know created more customers than what we even had and so making sure that any surprise was was a delight and not a aha like what i found because i think that's you can get caught up in that right so especially if 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 you don't have a clear vision on on what the exit number is going to be you're going to oversell it and that's when you're going to get the haircut yeah
1: that's yeah I, like i said i hesitate because your number actually went up
2: as a result of your your final
1: retrade, but but you hit the nail on the head. The, the trick is to disclose everything. I mean, every business has ports, but if you disclose those in advance and the information that they get during due diligence actually is better than the picture you painted for them, then in the end, you can be a winner, right, uh, on that game. But if, I hear so many times, well, how do we spin this or how do we hide this don't hide it. Uh, somebody who's skilled at due diligence, especially if you've got a strategic or a, or a financial buyer, they're going to find everything. Uh, and if you disclose it in advance, uh, you have a better chance of holding off on that retrade conversation. And I've got, I've got stories about that myself that perhaps someone's going to interview me uh, on this podcast about one of my transactions, and I'll tell about that story then. But uh, before we jump into the break, Uh, real quick, how did your, when did your employees find out and how did they react? Uh,
2: they, they found out, well, I, I I had to bring in a couple of people just to, to, um, write the ship on a couple of things, right? So, um, about three weeks before the actual, um, uh, date of handing over the keys, um, I brought my controller in, um, just because of, there were some Just transactional um, processes that I I really wanted her to to be a part of, and one of our architects on the technology side we brought in, and then we told the entire team um, the day um, that we were we were uh, turning it all over, and um, I think everybody knew. I mean, I was doing that for about fourteen years, so they they probably knew the day was going to come at some point, and uh, but they you know they were little little shocked to, to say the least. And, but you know what, the other thing is, um, the, the thing they care about the most is making sure that their career is going forward. They, they really don't, don't, I wouldn't say they don't care, but they really don't care that you're going to, you know, move on and go do something. And, and really it, at that point, it's not about, boy, I wonder, I wonder how well, you know, these guys actually, are, that, that doesn't cross their mind. So I,
1: How does it impact me? How does it impact me?
2: Yeah, and that, you know, that that was that was it. So, very few, you know, very. I had very few conversations about what am I going to do, and more about what are they going to do, and uh, and that's what I expected. All right, we're going to take a break. We're talking with David Weibel, a member of the seventeen percent club.
1: We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back in thirty seconds.
0: Don't you want to be a 17% or two? Of course you do, and we can help you get there. This fall, Mastery Partners is on a mission to unmask the value of your business with our incredible tool, the Transition Readiness Assessment, or as we like to call it, the TRA. In a simple and complicated way, the TRA unmasks where you are generating value in your business and where you aren't. This comprehensive assessment pinpoints your hits and misses so you can focus on what's working and solve what's not. What you do today matters, and will have a tremendous impact on the future value of your business. Get your TRA today and be a 17 percenter. Go to masterypartners.com, schedule a call with Tom, and join our TRA challenge. Don't be deceived, uncover and know how to build massive value in your business.
1: We're back with David Weibel, a business owner who has successfully transitioned his business in 2020. So what did you learn going through the process that you didn't know before David?
2: <laughs> uh, man there there were a lot of funny moments. Mind
1: you we have we have a we have a time limit. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> well you know it, it's funny it, and it's not some of the probably the big aha things that you know some people talk about. For me it was the little mechanics um, that that were really, really interesting. So for instance, at, at the end of the, the due diligence process, you know, you're you're coming down to figuring out what all the numbers are. And again, the, the number below the big number is really where the important parts are, but you're running a business and it's operating. So how do you know what the final numbers are? Right. And so I am freaking out as we're coming to the end of the days. And mind you, I, I'm the guy on, on, the, on the company side. How am I going to get all these numbers to line up perfectly? And I'm completely losing my mind until my attorney finally says to me, I don't understand what you're losing your mind over. There's a 90-day grace period here where we're actually going to true the numbers up. And you know, that'll all flush itself out. So that was a really nice thing that someone could have told me up front. And then the other thing was we in our deal, um, you know, we we needed to set up an entity to to be able to to um, transfer the money, and then disperse it to our shareholders. Well, no one told me that, right? And so as we're coming down to the to the end, my attorney says to me, "Hey, what's the EIN number for the uh, entity that you you formed?" And I'm like, "What entity?" Right? Like so those were some of the like goofy things that i was like boy that would be nice if someone had like a, a a punch list for for the owners to be able to say hey by the way in the next whatever few months just form an entity so we can we can do all of this stuff right and then making sure you find a bank that can actually wire out to your to your shareholders like just just those things were were a big aha i think the other thing was a lot of times when you're getting ready to sell your business, um, I, I think there's some folks out there that like to kind of preach the fear of, you know, how are you going to create a SIM and tell the right story? And, and, you know, what is, does what the documents look like that you need to share? And the reality of it is it, it doesn't have to be as, as laborious and a huge document that everybody said it needed to be. I, I found that, a, a really something a little bigger than an executive summary is what wet the beak of the serious buyers and then we start going through you know what I would say that that pre LOI process of getting them what they uniquely wanted to see in order to see if it was going to fit with what they wanted to buy so this whole idea of going through an exercise of creating a massive book was another thing that i realized was was a, a farce at least for our business Right. Yeah, it's not required for for many businesses.
1: By the way, as he said, CIM, that's confidential information memory, common term uh, for business uh, transactions. So was there anything in hindsight that you would
2: have done differently? Anything I would have done differently? No, I, I I was pretty happy with with the way we we executed things. I I I, li- I really liked the way everything went down. I I don't know because you know probably any of my complaints was how many more uh, requests am I going to get and and we were as clear as we possibly could be. But you know certain people needed to be done certain ways. But uh, um, you know I, I would say looking back and now I know because of, of working in my my new uh, venture, uh, building a, a better career trajectory um, uh, methodology for each and every employee um, would have would be something that I, I wish I would have done better because I, I think um, I think I created m- more stress for for those folks during the transi- transition and, and some people, I think, got overlooked with with some of the superpowers that I know they had um, because we didn't do a good enough job documenting the special nature of our team. And so that, without a doubt, is something I, I would have changed. You know, we, we we had just started to deploy this action based framework that we now have at, at work software and. Um, but yeah, that, that's probably my biggest regret. I, I could have done a hell of a lot better job at, uh, at helping people build their, their live portfolio or their live resume.
1: Right, uh, I like that. That's thinking about the people, right? And helping the folks down the line because this is an important transition for them as well. Is there any advice that you would give to business owners who are just beginning to think about a transition for their business?
2: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So the, the first thing I, I would say is start having conversations now, right? It, it is never too early to begin a process of, of dating these people because at the end of the day, it, you're not going to know who they are. And you probably will never really completely know, but you'll know a lot better if you start your process now and just start having conversations. And it's interesting to see how those – Innocent collisions start to lead you to the obvious buyers, and, and I think we all all hear, oh, you know, you probably already know who the buyer is going to be. It's you know, it's it's probably a strategic, and it's this, that, and the other. But I met a lot of amazing people along the way that introduced me to um, some really great people that eventually was the acquirer for for our business. I, I met them through uh, a collision that I would made. Early on, five years ago, you know, the the person I was introduced to, we ended up putting a deal together, right? And the nice thing is, you also don't come across desperate. And you can get a good sense of what the buyer is going to want to see. And so if you start early, you can start putting all of those building blocks in place now, give them time to mature and, and settle into your organization. So when the due diligence process happens, you know, it's like, voila, oh, that's how we do business. Well, you know, I got to cheat, which was awesome. You know, I got to, I got to get the playbook a half a decade ahead of when I was going to exit.
1: No, that's, that's great.
2: Start early. I, I love that. Uh, I, I often say
1: it's never too early. It's never too early. I, I have never gotten into a business. And some businesses I've held for as long as 17 years. I've never gotten into a business without first understanding what my exit strategy is. Didn't mean that that didn't ebb and flow because it changed with what was going on in the marketplace, right? I might've been pursuing a a revenue deal, but then the revenue multiples changed and then I needed to pivot and go to an EBITDA deal. Uh, And, uh, but if if you know that stuff, it helps drive the decisions uh, in the business. Now, when it came down to time to, Transition the business. Did you have an idea of
2: what you were going to do next already? Yeah, without a doubt, one hundred percent. I, you know, it, the 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 reason also that I I wanted to get out of the business. It, it was in January of of twenty twenty, and I'll never forget it. I, I think everybody needs to understand um, what their values are. And when I say that, I don't mean the, the typical values like, you know, be a good father, be a good husband, be this, that, and the other thing. I'm, I'm talking about what is it that really drives you in, in business? And for me, it was, it was three simple things, right? I, I like my businesses to require me to be resilient. I require them to challenge me, and I want them to be fun. And without a doubt, when January rolled around, I had two of the three. And, and it was the fun one that fell off, and and I'll never forget going to to our board and just saying, "I'm done." Like you know, we we had already hit all the magic numbers. We were doing dividends, so everybody was happy, and no one was pressuring anybody to to go. Um, but it it just it it lost its fun, and so during that process of of selling the business, um, I got to dig deep and and figure out what really kind of charged me up about. Uh, business and and that's what helped lead me to to the next thing I wanted to to get uh, get started so that I had pretty a pretty quick segue tell me what you're doing now and, and how our, our folks might
1: benefit from your new company
2: yeah so it, it was it, it helped happened like I said through that process the a lot of the folks that I was interacting with and and, and showing what we were doing and having really cool conversations um, I started to explain to them this thing I called the action-based framework. I always say you need to know your superpowers. Mine happen to be thinking, drawing, and talking. And so I like to draw some things out. And, and the action-based framework was was something that I really, really fundamentally believed in. I didn't have a name for it, it, it while I was running Industry Weapon, and I realized it, it is what helped me stay ahead of the financials. It gave me the ability to make changes in my business before the next P&L came out and we were cash flow positive, profitable and debt-free very early because of it. And so I wanted to build a platform that gave other business leaders the ability to 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 leverage it in their businesses. And I always say the nice thing about work software is we help people you know, take the vision that got them where they are now and and help them be able to scale it beyond where they can even, you know, think uh, is possible by, at the end of the day, empowering the people, right? And so, like I said, one of my biggest regrets is, is doing more for the employees so they were better prepared. Work software leverages action-based frameworks um, to be able to help take the vision of the business and distill it down to each individual career of every employee. And, and so that's what we do. We, we help companies grow faster utilizing a platform.
1: I, I love it. And I love the software, you know, for our, for our listeners to the podcast. If you don't know this, we've got a YouTube channel. It's called the Maximize Business Value YouTube channel. I had uh, David and his partner, Will, on a webinar a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that is on our YouTube channel about work software that goes into a much deeper dive onto that software. I highly, highly recommend that uh, for any business owner that really wants to drive sustainable results and accountability uh, in their business. And that's really kind of what we're all about. Well, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you uh, a, uh, one last business question uh, because this podcast is called Maximize Business Value what's the one most important thing you recommend business owners do to build value in their business?
2: I, I think the, the biggest thing is is the quicker they can get to understanding what their value creation revenue is, the the faster they're going to be able to create clarity in their business and, and simplicity. And, and when I say simplicity, I don't mean dumbing stuff down. That. I believe simplicity is a is a very simple equation. It's frequency plus clarity, right? So once you understand what it is that that is going to drive the value of your business, you need to constantly be, communicate that out to your team, and you need them to give you feedback on what they didn't understand about what you just said, right? Because kind of like what you were talking about, what you did for us on on this uh, um, on this podcast was, hey. Some of you may not know what SIM is, right? And so here, let me give you the definition. That happens every day in every conversation that business leaders have with their employees. So you got to increase the frequency of, of conversations that you're having and your managers are having. And you constantly need to make sure that you're creating clarity and getting them. I call it an intensity score, right? So we want employees to constantly be asking the questions to show that they're active in the business and and to communicate where we're not making sense, and 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 you know, say it a different way, or 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 work with them until they get it. Uh, I think that's
1: great. I was going to be really really disappointed in you if you didn't bring up VCR.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know what? It I actually for us at Industry Weapon when we learned about our VCR, it gave us the ability also to look at certain revenue streams and and change their their uh, their 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 use, right, and 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 align them more with the things that drove value. And and what was awesome about it is, I could create more value for our customers w- with less cost by by doing some of these exercises. So I think there's hidden gems for for everybody once they understand what is the main driver of their business. That's awesome. In fact, I think we ought to follow up with a with maybe a blog post about what
1: BCR is. And what that means. Maybe I'll give you that write that blog post uh, for us or we'll have you on another podcast just to talk about vcr now uh, as is the habit i don't know if you listen but our listeners uh, always like it when we get to this question and that i ask a bonus question at the end uh, and so uh, i have to ask you even though we're kind of doing a different series here because longtime listeners would be disappointed if i didn't ask this question what personality trait has gotten you into the most
2: trouble through the years I bet I have
1: I bet I bet I can answer this one for you, but I'd love to hear your answer.
2: Yeah, you know, I take everything so personal. I I am one hundred percent a complete drama queen over over stuff. Uh, uh, you know at times I just have a a really bad attitude. Like one one of the things I know I love about business is is really hating my competitors and wanting to like smash them into the dirt. And so that has gotten me in more, more trouble than, than I care to admit, That's you know, because
1: I know a lot about you and, and I wouldn't think that about you. I've always, you know,
2: followed the philosophy, keep
1: your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh I've I wish
2: to my enemies. Right. I, I wish I had that ability. I just don't like, but it's, you know, it's, it's part of the fun. It's part of the, you know, I, again, like I, I say, it works out for all the time now about, you know, knowing how to keep score in business, know what the goals are. Right. And, and, and business is a sport. Right. And so so yeah. your competitors are on the other other side of the of the line. And, you know, last I checked when when game's on, you know, we're not friends. I, I'm here. You know, I, I you know, I, I want to win. And so, uh, yeah, that that's gotten me in some trouble. That's awesome.
1: I love that answer. So that's a unique one. I don't think I've
2: heard that one before. <laughs> how, can,
1: how can our viewers get in touch with you and, and with work software?
2: Yeah. So work software is uh, you know, amazingly to me, especially in, in 2021, we actually have the URL www.work.software, not dot com. It's dot software. Um, I can be found at David at work.software is my email. And uh, you know, you can yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm I'm all over the place i'm connected to you so yeah awesome if they they can't get me they can get you and we'll we'll connect
1: well this has been a great fun conversation thanks for coming on the podcast david hey thank you tom uh so you can find david weibel at work.software or on linkedin and of course as always you can reach out to me and i will be happy to make a warm introduction to my good friend, David Weibel. You really should check out that new company, Work.Software. I think it could be a game changer for you and your business. This is the Maximize Business Value Podcast, where we give practical advice to business owners who are passionate about building long-term, sustainable value in their business. Be sure to tune in each week because this series is gonna be a lot of fun. The 17%er Club Tales from the 17% Club And follow us wherever you found the podcast. Be sure to comment. We love your comments. Until next time, I'm Tom Bronson, reminding you that it's never too early to start planning your ideal desired exit strategy while you maximize business value
0: for tuning in to the Maximize Business Value podcast with Tom Bronson, This podcast is brought to you by Mastery Partners, where our mission is to equip business owners to maximize business value so they can transition on their terms. Learn more on how to build long-term sustainable business value and get free value building tools by visiting our website, www.masterypartners.com. That's master with a Y, masterypartners.com. Check it out.
1: That was perfect. I wouldn't make any changes on that.